At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Everywhere we turn, someone is promising to finally give us the satisfaction and happiness we long for. Yet from advertisements to political campaigns, these promises so often remain unfulfilled. We know God makes promises too, but do you ever wonder if He'll actually keep them? Join us for our Christmas series, Fulfilled, as we discover how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to us and how the promises He kept then fulfill our deepest longings now. Great to be with you, and uh, yes, I am an Ohio State fan, so I need hope. Not just a fan, I'm actually an alum. That's where I met my wife, who's from Michigan, uh, at Ohio State, but here we are. And uh, so that video was really, really great. I encourage you to do, do pray about your role in helping Woodside accomplish uh, the vision that God has laid on the hearts of, of our church. Well, today we are going to be in Matthew chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 16. So go ahead and turn your uh, devices on, find that passage. If you have your Bibles, Open it up to Matthew chapter 2 as we're continuing uh, to look at this series called Fulfilled, His Promise Kept and Our Longing Met. And uh, one of the beautiful things about Scripture is there are these uh, constant tensions. And it's not, you know, it's not that it's a beautiful and amazing literary strategy. It's that this is the Word of God which is inspired by the Holy Spirit and these men wrote down the Word of God for us to, to read from, to learn, and to let our souls be shaped by it. Now, just to give you an idea before we read the text, uh, the big idea today is in Jesus, our morning turns to hope. In Jesus, our morning turns to hope. And we're going to look at four things in particular as it relates to that, as we go on this journey of, of how it is that morning can be turned into hope through Jesus. First thing we'll look at is the reality of evil. What role does evil play in, in us understanding how we get to hope in Jesus? We'll also look at the important role of lament. How can we take what is evil, lament its reality, and then move on towards finding comfort and peace in Jesus? We'll look at the emergence of hope in this passage. We're going to see how through this narrative, we, we go from that evil lament into an emergence of hope. And then finally, where we want to land is the promise of his return, the promise of Jesus' return, and what the ultimate eternal hope is that we find in that. Well, let's go ahead, and if you would, I love it when people stand for the reading of God's word. If you would, please go ahead and stand. And uh, I'm going to read the text for us. We're actually going to go to verse 23, which is just a little bit outside of the scope of today's message. But it really, if you listen to it, brings completion to what we're talking about. Well, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this in the second chapter, beginning in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Achaelius was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father, to you be the glory. Thank you so much for us being able to gather here, being able to open the word of God. Father, I thank you for bringing John and his family into into this campus, and I pray for a long and fruitful ministry for him and also everybody who is here. Father, we also do pray for uh, Pastor Chris and the vision that um, our elders and our leadership have as that begins to play out in places like East Lansing and also Ann Arbor. But Father, for today, we also pray that your word will shape our heart, will shape our souls, and that we would be not only Christians, but we would be Christians who are more equipped to help not only our own mourning turn into joy in Jesus but also to help those who are outside of Christ right now, to help them in their mourning, to help us show them how to find true hope in Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, Christmas is that most joyous time of the year, right? I mean, come on. We have shopping and we have carols on the radio. We have beautiful lights. We have Christmas Eve service to look for. We have many, many calories to consume, right? We have all these wonderful, joyous things about Christmas that that are just fabulous, quite frankly. And yet, we would be amiss if we didn't realize that there are people who are mourning this Christmas season. You see, even in the midst of the joy that we have as Christians and those who are in Christ experienced by celebrating the Incarnation, we would be amiss if we didn't realize and didn't acknowledge the fact that there are those who, quite frankly, aren't looking forward to the Christmas season. Or if they are, their joy is being suppressed by the reality of tragedy, perhaps in their own soul or in someone's life around them. We realize that as beautiful as the Christmas story is, as we will gather to to celebrate it next Saturday and next Sunday, as beautiful as it is as we celebrate the Incarnation, the reality is, and Matthew does a fabulous job of showing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the early life of Jesus and Mary and Joseph wasn't all peaches and cream. In fact, it seems like it was very difficult, and Matthew brings that highlight to us here, that in the midst of joy, in the midst of angels rejoicing in the heavenly realms, in the midst of of shepherds coming and seeing the Christ child, in the midst of Joseph and Mary and the Christ child establishing a new family and everything that comes along with a new baby and a one-year-old and and perhaps a two-year-old, there were difficulties in life. And we realize there are difficulties in life a lot of times because of the reality of evil. Now, we understand this, right? I mean, this is, this is common knowledge. There is good in the world, but there is evil in the world. You go to places like Ukraine, you see evil happening as missiles are bombarding civilians. You go to places like Africa, and you see evil being present, where, where evil regimes are withholding things like food from people. You can go all over the world, and you can see evidences of evil happening all around us. 
We even have evidences of evil just taking place even right here in Michigan. We could think of tragedies that are happening before Christmas. Yes, likely, inevitably, there will be a car accident on Christmas Eve and the police will have to knock on the door on Christmas Day. There are people, just like on Monday when I was officiating a funeral, who are going to be missing grandpa at the Christmas tree. They're going to be missing a brother at Christmas dinner. They're going to be missing a child on Christmas morning because of tragedy and because of sin and because of evil in our world. Just recently, Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed the directives for Proposal 3 to be implemented among all the departments in Michigan. We see presence of evil. And think about this. No accident. Proposal 3 goes into effect on Christmas Eve. When we are getting ready to celebrate a child being born. You see, we realize that the reality of evil is one of the things that leads to mourning. And as we think about evil happening within the world, we also understand that the presence of evil has been in existence since Genesis chapter 3. You realize what happened there, right? And we understand this, and we've studied it. And there was the devil taking the form of a serpent who was tempting Eve and tempted Adam. And Adam ate of the tree of the forbidden fruit, the fruit of the forbidden tree. And there he was, and evil entered into the world, and their eyes were opened. Evil was present in Genesis 4 as Cain murdered Abel. Evil is present as the whole biblical narrative continues, and we see that evil is still happening today. We shouldn't be surprised by this. The Bible talks about the reality of evil, and one of the sources of the reality of evil is not only the enemy, but it is our own human heart. We look to Jeremiah chapter 17, and we're told that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? So we read in a passage like Matthew chapter 2, And we can sit there and we can be appalled by the fact that a man would order the murder of all these children and infants under the age of two because his reign was being threatened. But are we surprised? Are we surprised? For the Christian who has any basic understanding of the reality of sin and the reality of the deceptive heart, we are appalled by these things, but we're not surprised. I mean, quite frankly, were we really surprised when we saw the results on Election Day here in Michigan? Are we really surprised at the fact that evil exists, that we will see a news story about the murder of somebody this week? Are we really surprised at the fact that we will hear of wars and famines happening this week? Are we really surprised at the reality that hospitals will still be filled, that morgues will still be operating, that funeral homes will still be in business? No. Because sin, of course, is reaching all throughout the created order. And, of course, the human heart is evil above all things. It's amazing how sometimes we are amazed by people who come to realize this truth. One of the ways it was best expressed was by a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a Nobel Prize-winning author who documented the horror of the Soviet gulags in his work, The Gulag Archipelago. And as he experienced the horrors of evils in the gulag, it led him to an amazing, interesting observation. And this is what he wrote in his famous work. He said, Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, 
passes not between classes, not between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an, up, an unuprooted small corner of evil. Now think about that just for a moment. As I said earlier, we look at Scripture and we see that evil is not covered up throughout the Scripture narrative. We can go and we can look at what was perhaps a preview of how evil the world can be, especially towards God's chosen people. Now, of course, there in Matthew chapter 2, what is Herod trying to do? He's trying to protect his kingship. And what does he do? He goes and he murders all the young boys age 2 and under. This was not only an attack on those children and their families, but this was an attack on the Christ child himself, who through spiritual means was protected by God. But we see examples of this all throughout the Old Testament. We see that the people of Israel were enslaved by Egypt. We can even go to the book of Esther and we can see Haman's plot to kill the Jews. Let's recall that for a moment. And we see that not only was there in Matthew chapter 2 the attempt to exterminate the Christ child through whom God's promises would be fulfilled, but we see in Esther there's an attempt to exterminate all of God's people, the Israelites, in order to not just kill them, but we see the greater spiritual realm happening, trying to thwart God's plan of salvation from being realized. In Esther chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, the Bible says this, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom to keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people. And they do not obey the king's law. It is not the king's is it not in the king's best interest to tolerate them? Or sorry, it is not the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be made, be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. The plot was pitched. It was accepted. In just a few verses down, you see the decree. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the orders to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. Young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Once again, we read that. We're astonished. We're shocked. But we shouldn't be surprised. We should not be surprised. You see, when we realize the, the presence of evil, and we not only realize it, but we begin to understand its source rooted in the enemy, rooted in the sinful human heart, we begin to have a greater understanding of not only what is the problem, but what are the solutions. And so we continue. We recognize that evil originates with the devil. We recognize that evil is a part of the sinful condition of man. We realize that ultimately what evil is looking to do is to oppose the will of God at whatever the cost. Annihilate a people? Yes, that's what evil will do. Murder somebody? Yes, that's what evil will do. Order the decree to kill all male children under the age of two? Yes, that's what an evil heart does. And so as we begin to understand the nature of the evil heart, then we will begin to understand how to move forward in letting our mourning turn to hope in Jesus.
So what happens next? What happens next? Well, Matthew tells us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew quotes the passage from Jeremiah chapter 31. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we're told about a city named Ramah. We're told about a woman named Rachel. And we see a lament of what's going on for the people of Israel. Now, if you remember, it was about 586 when the Babylonians took the Jewish people into captivity. It's something that we can't really relate to here in America, right? I mean, we're protected by two friendly neighbors. We have two massive oceans. We've, we've never been in a situation where we've just been completely uprooted, completely embarrassed as a nation and, and taken somewhere else. Well, the lament in Jeremiah is telling us what was going on as the Babylonians were taking the Jews captive. You see, Ramah was a city just a few miles north of Jerusalem, and it's a place where exiles were basically dispatched to Babylon. It's a place where families were broken up. It's a place where young men and children and and families were dispersed. It's a place where basically the Jewish people were turned into slaves, processed, and sent away from the city of Jerusalem, their home. We're told that Rachel was mourning. Rachel, of course, is symbolic of all the mothers of Israel during that time. She was the favored wife of Jacob from Genesis and the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. Representing all mothers of Israel, we see as we read the lament, the pain that is being expressed as a mother is weeping for the loss of her child. And you think about it in a day in which there was 586 and the Babylonians were taken captive. When the children and the families were ripped apart, there was no guarantee whatsoever you would ever hear from them again or see them again. And so you can imagine a mother losing the child and realizing this is it. I will never see my child again. I will never see my husband again. I will never, never have the family that I had ever again. And that was the reality for the families there in Jerusalem. As the order was given, the soldiers came, murdering the children aged two and under. The families would never, ever, ever be the same. And so Matthew is using the passage from Jeremiah, comparing the lament of the families in the early years of Jesus' life to the lament of the mothers during the Babylonian captivity. When we think about lament, what lament really does is it impacts the human heart. When you look at what evil can do, evil can harden the heart. Evil can callous the heart. Evil can actually turn the heart into someone that opposes the will of God. But if you look at godly lament, what godly lament always does is it always holds on to the hope that is from God. I go back to the funeral that I was preaching on Monday. And here was a dad that was being laid to rest. And as I mentioned earlier, the reality that come Christmas, the phone call will never come. The laughter will never be heard. The seat will never be filled by him again. The presents will not be received and they will not be given. And what allows a person, and perhaps many of you or some of you have experienced this, 
What allows a person to go from mourning to hope? The world has many things to offer. But all the things that the world offers are temporal. And all the things that the world offers leave a gap that can't be filled. And so we as Christians, we acknowledge the hard times. We empathize with those who are mourning. We come alongside them and we pray for them and we provide for them and we, we listen to them. But the only thing that will ultimately fill this is a lament that points people back to God. You see, in this lament that is inserted here in Matthew, it's a lament that is meant to tell the Jewish readers that the gospel was written to. This is how sad and this is how painful this was for what happened by the decree of King Herod. But we also see that there is an acknowledgement of fulfilled prophecy. There is an acknowledgement of the reality of evil. And there is acknowledgement of God's way of turning mourning into hope. Correct mourning will always point people to Jesus. This is why when you read a book like Lamentations, or you read the laments in the Psalms, the laments almost always end on praising God. But here's what we have to do in order to recognize and see how in Jesus our mourning turns to hope, we have to realize evil and understand it to some degree. We have to know about the role of lament, and then we see the emergence of hope. As you continue reading in Jeremiah, not only do you see the lament that is taking place, but in verses 16 through 17, this is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemies. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. Now there is Jeremiah, simply the mouthpiece for God. But even in the Babylonian captivity, not only do you see the acknowledgement of evil by means of the Babylonians, not only do you see the mourning in the, means of, in, the, in the way of a lament, but as you keep reading, you see the promise of God which is bringing hope. And it is not that God is, God is being mean to them. It's not that God is being difficult with them. It's not that he's, he's providing this, this uh, uncharacteristically unloving type of direction. No. He's empathizing in the only way the God of the universe, the creator of the universe can. It's the best way. And he tells them, look, restrain your voice from weeping. Stop mourning is what he's saying. And don't just stop mourning because I'm telling you to suck it up. I want you to stop mourning because there is hope. There is hope. And there is hope in my promise. And my promise is telling you that there will be a day when those you love will come back from captivity. And your children will return to their own land. We see also the emergence of hope in Matthew's narrative in verse 19. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. There is hope. There is hope that they can return home. There is hope that the one who ordered the death of Jesus and wasn't successful is dead. And there was hope because here was God himself sending an angel, a messenger, letting Joseph know now is a great time to go back. Your child's life has been preserved. The Christ child's life has been saved. And what I've called him to do will now be accomplished, is what God was saying in so many words. And direction was given to go back home. We understand that evil is present, and it is present in every step of the way of the biblical narrative. But alongside of evil, we always see hope emerging. We read Genesis chapter 3, and we're like, oh, this is so horrible. But then we read Genesis 3.15, and we're like, wow, there's hope. We read Genesis 4, and we're like, this is, this is astounding, and this is so sad. A brother killed his brother. And yet we continue to read, and we find hope. We go to Genesis chapter 6, and we see, oh man, the whole world was destroyed by a flood. And yet we go to Genesis chapter 9, and we see God promises that he will never again destroy the whole earth with a rainbow. We could look at Abraham and Isaac, and we say, wow, Abraham was commanded to kill his only son. How could that be? And then we see hope in Genesis 22, when God provides a ram and tells Abraham to stop. Once again, we see this all throughout Scripture. We're discouraged by the fact that the Israelites are in Egypt, and then they're so close to the promised land, and then they mess it up because we can't go in. And they roam the wilderness for 40 years, and we're oh man, this is ridiculous. And we see the sin of the people, and we see the hardness of their hearts, and we see the laments from Moses, and we see the laments from God. And yet then we are introduced to Joshua. And we see hope as the people prepare to cross into the promised land. We continue reading and we see once again tragedy and evil. And we could go to places like 2 Kings chapter 4. And there is a widow who loses her only son. And yet we find hope in that Elisha raises him from the dead. All throughout the biblical narrative, there is tragedy and there is hope. And in Matthew chapter 2, it continues. There is tragedy in the murder of children and infants, and there is hope that is found in Jesus. God is a God of hope, and he is one who is greater than all the evil in the world, and he is the one who can heal the heart, he can turn the morning into joy, and he can fill that gap that is always there in earthly solutions. This is the God of promises. But it doesn't end in Matthew chapter 2. We realize this. Because here we are in the New Testament church age. And we look back on Matthew chapter 2 and we're saddened by the reality, but we're excited because Jesus' life is preserved. We go and we continue to read the Gospels and there is Jesus. What is he doing? Bringing hope to people. Making the lame to walk, the blind to see, the mute to speak, the deaf to hear. Lazarus, come out. We see all these things, and then he dies. He dies. Peter denies him three times. He's abandoned. He dies. But there's the hope. Three days later, he rises from the grave. 
He ascends into heaven 40 days later. And then we have the epistles telling us how to live, but always pointing us to the future hope that is in Christ. We have the promise of return. In Matthew chapter 2, 21 and 22, we see the return as it occurs at that time. And he, being Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Achilles was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Matthew's story continues. The hope that is found in Jesus continues. And the tension rises again, doesn't it? Well, wait a minute. He was just told to go back. Oh, but wait a minute. There's still danger. Oh, wait. There's still hope because he still goes back. And why does he go back? As you continue the narrative, what you see is it goes back to verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he was called a Nazarene. Now, hermeneutically, what's happening here is Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing a particularly Jewish gospel, is once again telling the Jewish reader, here is yet another example of fulfilled prophecy, and the Christ child is maybe two at the oldest, maybe three. And so here it is, the presence of evil, the reality of lament, which the Jewish people would have been all too familiar with, the emergence of hope, and the promise of the return. Immediately realized in the text in Matthew, as Jesus returns back to Israel, he ends up going to Nazarene so that he might once again fulfill Scripture. Fulfill Scripture. And so there it is in the immediate context, but what about the greater picture? Because here we are. We still have the reality of a neighbor who is sad this Christmas season. We still have our own hearts who are perhaps going through some sort of mourning or tragedy or, or heartache this Christmas season. How do we take what's in Matthew chapter 2 and apply it to our own hearts, to the hearts of those who are around us? Where is the hope now? Is the hope only in the past that is in the resurrected Jesus? Well, absolutely. But we also know there is a future hope that has yet to be realized. And listen to the beauty of the future hope found in Revelation 21, 3 and 4. Here is John giving us the revelation that he received. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so we look to this. And we realize that the hope that we have is not only in the past at the crucified and resurrected and ascended Jesus who's reigning on the throne right now from heaven and is awaiting his return, but it is also realized in the reality that he will return. And all these things the Holy Spirit gives John to tell his people 
Look at what's going to happen. The dwelling place of God will be with man. He will be with them. They will be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. We will stand in the presence of God. And what's true about the presence of God? There is no evil. The light cast out the darkness. The sadness is dispersed. Death reigns no more. And that's exactly what the Scriptures tell us. There will be no mourning. There will be no crying. There will be no pain. Because the former things have passed away. And what are these former things? These are all things that are tied to Romans chapter 8. The creation groaning for its creator. And so we look at this and we apply this today. There will be no need for hospitals. There will be no need for care facilities. There will be no need for ambulances and EMTs. There will be no need for morgues. Funeral homes will be out of business because those who are in Christ will have completely seen the evil of this world pushed away, pushed out, taken care of, defeated. There will no longer be a need for lament. And instead, our mourning will turn to joy and it will be completely completed in the person, the works, and the future realization of Jesus Christ. The promise of the return is what we look forward to. We see that throughout history, there has been evil. There will continue to be evil. We see that God gives us a tool to help with that evil. It's called lament. And remember, godly lament points us towards God and takes us to God. We see the emergence of hope. It's found in Jesus Christ. And we look forward to the reality of his return, which will be ultimate hope fully realized. But that still leaves us today. That still leaves us with sad hearts. That still leaves us with empty seats this Christmas. That still leaves the police needing to be on duty. Regretting the reality that one of them somewhere will have to make the phone call on Christmas Eve night or show up and knock on the door on Christmas Day. It still leaves us in the reality that funeral homes are still in business this week and they'll be in business next week. It still leaves us with the reality of our, our neighbor sad because of hardships. It still leaves us with the reality that we will likely see on Christmas Eve night a, a fire in the city of the Detroit or southeast Michigan where a family's Christmas has been ruined. It still leaves us with these realities that even in our own hearts we're dealing with sin. We're dealing with sadness. We're dealing with sickness. And so where does this story leave us? For those of us who are Christians, it reminds us that our hope is found in Jesus. And so it's a call to return to scriptures. It's a call to pray more. It's a call to be part of the fellowship of the body of Christ. It's a call to be reminded that, guess, God understands evil. He understands our mourning. And he is inviting us to hope that is found in Jesus. But then there's the other person. Perhaps even one of you here today. You're looking for hope. Your neighbor is looking for hope. Your family member is looking for hope. Your co-worker is looking for hope. And they don't know where to turn. 
which is where the gospel comes in. We understand that God has placed you where he has you, in that workplace, beside that person this week, across from the person this week, so that perhaps you can be the one to tell these people about the hope that is found in Jesus. This is what Jesus does. He steps right into the mess, and he makes it better. He confronts sin and calls people to repentance. He takes the person who is seeking the workspace salvation and says, hey, this is a free gift of grace. And he brings hope to the person who is mourning. For us, a great reminder. For someone else, an invitation to eternal hope found in Jesus. So let's not miss those opportunities this week. Let's not ignore what Matthew chapter 2 is, is teaching us. And let's go and let's, let's celebrate the incarnation this week. And let's invite others to do the same so that they can experience the eternal hope that is found in Jesus. And so that they can ultimately realize that their mourning can truly be turned into joy by faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, to you be the glory. We come before you. We thank you for the message that is found in Matthew chapter 2, and we thank you for the hope that is found in Jesus. Thank you for the reminder that it serves for those of us who are Christians, and thank you for the encouragement that it gives and the opportunity it presents for those who aren't. And Lord, I pray that we will be diligent in, in being messengers of the hope that is found only in Jesus this week. And so, Father, we come before you and we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, and will one day return to wipe all evil from this world. Dear Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.